Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of federal agency bashing that happens in America. It's become a popular thing, and I've always it bothers the hell out of me because there's so many great professionals at work at the federal agency level all across the federal government. And uh, we're going to have a show today with one of the coolest agencies that a lot of people have never heard of, uh, but it plays such an essential role on the American shoreline. It's the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is part of the U.S. Department of the Interior, Tyler. Yes, it is. And uh, one might not think that the Department of the Interior would have such an exterior (laughs) continental shelf role to play. Yeah. But uh, our outer border is is governed by, uh, and I'm talking about the the big ocean out there and the seafloor in particular, is governed by this really awesome and powerful, mighty agency called BOEM. Mm-hmm. And BOEM has been in the news a lot recently, Peter. I've, yeah. I mean, I've been noticing this proliferation of offshore wind news stories on the Coastal News Today feed. Absolutely. And that's no accident because no. there's a major, major, major sea change occurring uh, yeah. in offshore wind and BOEM is at the heart of it. They are. The, the offshore energy industry relies on leases from the federal government on the Outer Continental Shelf uh, for the placement of these new energy uh, infrastructure facilities. And BOEM is in command of those leases. Uh, and that's true, uh, BOEM's role on oil and gas leasing offshore and offshore sand resources for beach nourishment. So all you coastal engineers out there uh, know about BOEM. Uh, and local government officials who are looking for sand sources for beach nourishment. This is also a bone matter when you get into the federal waters offshore. So uh, it's an important agency, and we're really looking forward to uh, taking a dive into the agency with an absolutely cool guest who's at the center of it all. That's right. We're going to be talking to Dr. Rodney Cluck, Chief of the Division of Environmental Sciences at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, or BOEM. Joining us from... I think it's our nation's capital is where where, where Rodney is located. I believe that's correct. I think the yeah. the big district. I think so. <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to talking to Rodney, learning more about BOEM and about what they're working on, especially their environmental services division. Me too. Me too. I'm. You know, this is. I, I've titled this kind of BOEM 101. So we're going to do some broad level stuff. We're going to learn about what the agency does. Yeah. The bureau. The bureau. You know, I have an. <laughs> I just immediately. Love a good federal bureau. Uh, so uh, we're right. we're going to learn about the the bureau, mm-hmm. uh, broad landscape scale, and then we're going to explore Rodney's division, yeah. and they're doing some really cool work. And then we're going to talk about what it all means because there's so much changing out there. And ocean yeah. science, as we love to nerd out on, Peter, yeah. is just this. It's like a rocket ship right now. There's so much happening. So the much. the de- the degree of uh, science and understanding that we are developing is so cool. And BOEM is actually playing a big role in that too. So really looking forward to it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, Our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest 
questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Dr. Cluck, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you very much to you and the agency for breaking time out of your schedule to speak to our listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, we want to start, Rodney, if you wouldn't mind, uh, with an overview of what the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is all about. Uh, Give us an intro. Yeah, well, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management uh, is really a small agency. It's only, it's, it's less than 600 people and it's in the Department of the Interior. So um, Bureau has a, has a really, really big job. Um, we manage ocean energy and mineral resources all throughout the United States outer continental shelf. But the hard part, of course, is to do that in a, a safe, uh, and environmentally sustainable and economically sustainable responsible way. In other words, to ensure we protect the environment, but also uh, bring benefits to society, uh, energy, jobs. Those things are really important. And we have to always think about uh, the, the, the safety of, of the construction of these facilities, the operations as they go through their lifetime. Um, our, our jurisdiction is, is, is massive. It's 2.5 billion acres. Um, so that's a wow. lot more than our on-land uh, counterparts at the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, you know, they have, you know, much less land than we have on the uh, on the ocean, uh, because we're looking at, you know, from about uh, the coastline out to about three miles, and then from three miles to 200 miles, that's our jurisdiction, and that's all throughout the Atlantic, all throughout the Gulf of Mexico, all throughout the uh, Pacific, uh, up through Alaska and, and, and the Arctic. And then um, also Hawaii. We do not have jurisdiction over the territories and possessions in the Pacific, so it's, 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 it's offshore states. That's the way the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act was written. Um, and, and in that massive area, uh, we cover uh, uh, oil and gas development, which a lot of that occurs, of course, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you know, some in Alaska. Uh, Renewable energy, which is mainly wind energy, which is really taking off like gangbusters in the in the Atlantic. We have uh, we've also had uh, lease sales in, in the Pacific, and Gulf of Mexico is not far behind. Um, mm-hmm. And we have our marine minerals program also that focuses a lot on beach renourishment. That is taking sand from the outer continental shelf, matching that sand to the sand on the beach, which is easier said than done, and then pumping that sand along with our friends at the Army Corps of Engineers to, to uh, restore that beach uh, and re-nourish it. So we do work on that area with marine minerals and also a barrier islands in the Gulf of Mexico that might have uh, eroded a bit because of hurricanes and uh, things like that. So we have, you know, those, uh, those challenges, um, and we also are looking towards um, 
carbon capture and sequestration, which is another responsibility that we're right now currently um, writing uh, rules and regulations on that, which essentially could be capturing carbon from like a, 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 a plant uh, factory onshore, pumping that carbon out in, into the outer continental shelf and then sequestering it into a reservoir mm-hmm. uh, under the ground. Uh, new, uh, Norway has done it a bit, but this is something that, mm-hmm. uh, that we are looking towards as, as well. Um, so yeah, a lot of a lot of things on the horizon uh, that uh, that we may be looking at. Uh, one thing I wanted to also mention is critical minerals. Uh, we don't have the clear authority yet for critical minerals, but the the rare earth minerals that could be on the bottom of the ocean, things like manganese uh, that go in the uh, that, that could go in your cell phones or electric batteries in electric cars. We're of course having more and more of a need for those. That's something that may also be under our um, our jurisdiction in the future. So, again, we're trying to do all this uh, in a way that ensures environmental safety and social and economic benefits for the nation. Hmm. What a big agenda, Tyler! Um, it's 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 incredibly big, and I, I have to ask Rodney, how I mean, how big is in terms of manpower? is the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, because this is an incredible portfolio that you just described. Yeah, um, you know, less than 600 people. I think we're 580-something. So, wow. I mean, really, really small. A uh, couple of hundred of those folks are, are, are scientists, um, but, you know, we also have geologists, geophysicists. Uh, we have attorneys and different kinds of specialists uh, that help, uh, you know, do the, all, all the legal processing of, of, of the leases. But, uh of course, in the world I live in, uh, uh, is is the nerdy science world, uh, with that uh, that really foundation for decision making is, is is the science. But uh, one would have to say, when you look at the size of other other bureaus or agencies across the uh, federal government, that we are quite quite small. Yeah, these are these are huge issues. You guys are on the infrastructure scale of things, uh, energy development, offshore mineral resources, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the emerging business of uh, carbon capture and sequestration and secure geologic storage, kind of offshore, uh, deep sea mining, uh, possibly coming into your portfolio. Uh, the level of expertise required to analyze these issues, understand the potential environmental and economic implications of what is being proposed is is a big deal, uh, Rodney. And I would imagine that your team uh, has got some very highly qualified experts who can dive into these issues and provide policy guidance to the Secretary of the Interior on the leases and uses of this offshore uh, land. Tell us about your team. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, It's such an incredible team. Um, I mean, I would put our folks and our scientists up against any academic across the world, really. Um, you know, when, you're, when you work for a regulatory agency and are a scientist, uh, you kind of have to be able to, um, um, I guess, one might say, take a punch, uh, because mm-hmm. everybody's going to be critiquing all the work you do, and, and you want to ensure uh, that that, uh, that information is being you know, used to inform decisions. But at the same time, you know, there's strong feelings about energy, right? Some people may, may support oil, some 
some not. Some people may support wind, some not, right? So everybody has, in a, in a sense, a real the, the, these value judgments about things. So oh, yeah. it's, it's important for our scientists to remain uh, objective and, and to ensure that we have the utmost levels of credibility and integrity. And um, But we you know, engage regularly you know, with stakeholders out there and... Um, a lot of stakeholders don't, don't hold back by telling us how they feel about certain things. <laughs> this is so America. Again, <laughs> yeah. So, so again, you know, uh, our folks must be able to you know, take a punch, so to speak, not literally, but they be able to, uh, mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, understand and take those in. And, and we really, uh, you know, through our, our, our science program and our science, one thing we really take, take seriously is that stakeholder input to engage with community people, uh, you know, whether that is just the local jurisdiction, whether that's uh, fisheries groups, whether that's uh, you know recreation and, and, and tourism folks that you, you represent that, uh, and of course one of the most important uh, areas is, is tribal engagement to ensure that we're really understanding the perspectives of, of the tribes from their point of view, not from our scientific point of view and our, our Western science world but you know from their traditional point of view and trying to kind of juxtapose uh that to uh have that kind of uh that co-production of knowledge if if you will i i would actually go go further than that and actually back it up a step it's not only the product the co-production it's the co-construction because you're really constructing the knowledge up front and you know they may be thinking about things across the last hundred generations you know this historical perspective why you know, as scientists, we may be looking at things a bit differently, uh, but how do you kind of bring those the, those things together? So I think one thing I, I'm really proud of our team about here, you know, uh, at, at one point, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a while, and it was easy to talk to our archaeologists and, and anthropologists about uh, about kind of, you know, social perspectives and values and traditional knowledge. But a little bit harder to break through on the physical oceanographers, chemical oceanographers, and some of the biologists. But we've evolved to a point now that this has really become institutionalized uh, through our through our agency and through our science program. Where I love it when a physical oceanographer will actually bring in anthropologists as part of their their study to get advice from a tribe, you know, on the changes in the ocean. While you're also out there collecting, you know, Western scientific data, you're also getting perspectives from generations, storytelling through tribes. So that balance is, is amazing. So I, I think that kind of where we've uh, evolved is, you know, extremely notable. And, you know, I'm really proud of our, uh, our, our folks for reaching this kind of pinnacle of, of thought. You know, I'm just going to jump in here and say that there's an interesting thing happening with... Um with the science that Bohm does, Peter, and that it really can't be too ivory towery, you know? No. At the end of the day, there's this strongly applied nature that uh, you, like an oil platform is going to go in, potentially, or in, 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 in all likelihood, or an offshore wind yeah. uh, collection of offshore wind turbines is going to be deployed. And on the one hand, that forces a different type of exploration and a, and and a different type of questioning and cuz it it assumes an impact it assumes that there is no silver bullet solution and one of the things that i really love about rodney your background is that you're a social scientist 
Yep. Um, and uh, could you talk a little bit, and, and you're talking about kind of the scientific culture within BOEM, which I find very interesting. And um, I mean, I don't, I, I, I've, I've, the, you're a lovely guy. It's been great talking to you. Uh, and I imagine that you have something, you know, in your leadership style um, as a social scientist that you bring to the table about this kind of collaborative or constructive knowledge. Could you go into that a little bit more about the, the role of social science um, in ocean exploration? Sure. Um, you know, and it, was, it wasn't something that was always uh, prominent, if you will, uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, in ocean science. But uh, actually, in 1997, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine did a review of the, back then, the Minerals Management Service, the pre predecessor agency of, uh, mm -hmm. of BOEM, and said, you're <clears throat> lacking in social science. Uh, so, uh, uh, and you need to build a program that's strong. And that's, uh, that's the kind of the, the sociology, the anthropology, the socioeconomic, sociocultural aspects. So they, they brought me in to kind of do that back in, uh, in 99 to kind of build, build the program. And, you know, um, what, what I, you know, the, the program I came out of, I, I studied and got a PhD from Mississippi State University in environmental sociology. And um, I really focused and understood that uh, to really make, make decisions about natural resources and environmental uh, decisions on, on how things are going to be developed, whether that's a kind of mine or oil and gas or any type of energy development, you had to understand the underpinnings of society. You had to understand those local community people. You had to understand their values, their perspectives, and everything else. Um, in, in Mississippi, I worked on a, uh, a lignite power plant and coal mine uh, during my PhD for a while, you know, doing environmental and social impact assessment. And it was, you know, really enlightening being able to talk to a lot of people that lived in these rural areas of Choctaw, Mississippi, you know, saying, you know, what's important to you? And, you know, these kind of um, guys that may have worked at a factory or this or that, what's, what do they value? They value being able to hunt, being able to fish. And they want and they want to be able to eat the fish and they want to be able to eat the deer uh so the, one of their biggest concerns was hey you know we're not that opposed to the the power plant is it going to mess up our uh our, our fishing and hunting um so you know it, it kind of goes hand in hand when you're talking about environment society uh you know, economics so as i got this job here at the uh, at that time the minerals management service i really felt strongly about you know bringing that, that in and, and ensuring that people understood kind of that real uh, uh, focus that, that one must have on stakeholder engagement, on the learning process of being able to engage with community people, to be able to, uh, to understand what their values are, what their perspectives are, and to essentially do no harm. It's not just about doing no harm to an endangered species. It's about doing no harm to the human population as well. The Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, Section 20, says we must understand the effects of the human, marine, and coastal environment. Humans clearly in there and very, very prevalent. So um, I had the uh, honor and opportunity to be able to, to come here and kind of really build and, and, and focus that that sociological aspects and integrate that into our, our, our biology, physical and chemical sciences. And I think over the last 
20 years or so, indeed it has been institutionalized. And um, not to say that it was something that I did alone, of course, times change, people evolve, uh, and, you know, perspectives change. But I think that that leadership in that in, in that manner and putting these things on the table and having people uh, talk about it and science, scientists talk about it, you know, it was really important. And I now and now you will not find anybody across the whole the whole bureau that doesn't talk about the importance of tribal engagement, the importance of stakeholder input, the importance of talking and understanding impacts on fisheries. So I think this really um, that really led to to, to the, the you know those perspectives being kind of instilled in Bohm. Well, I, I I love it. It's a uh, it's an improvement, I think, over because uh, in writing, what I want to ask is, did you think when you when you you know got this into this position of leadership, uh, have you studied or thought about um, other stories in American history? And I'm thinking very specifically about kind of the dam infrastructure out west where there was this kind of, you know, tame the desert um, a, a land rush in a way. It was like we had the technology. There was clearly an economic benefit. I realized that this isn't a bone thing, but it's mm -hmm. a similar, like, you know, I can see the similarity with wind and stuff where, you know, we are going, go, we're going to step out into the frontier. We're going to use technology um, but I, I have on that actual social science component where you're talking about this culture where you're, do you think that that's evolved from like the 1920s and thirties to, to a century later? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, cause obviously those, those people who were in charge back then didn't think they were going to do environmental harm. Of course, they thought this was in the best interest of the nation. Um, but now, nowadays, I think we have questions about how that's panned out. Anyway, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, very interesting question. You know, I mean, a lot of those uh, kind of, if you're looking at a dam or just kind of any kind of a, a coal mine like, uh, that I talked about in, in Mississippi or other type of natural resource development, a lot of times, especially onshore, you've got kind of a, a boom cycle, right? You could have a lot of people come in for construction and a, a community and area boom. And a lot of those earlier kind of uh, socio-ecological type studies kind of kind of looked at this massive influx of humans, these detrimental effects, and then and, and, and then over time, you know, after construction, a lot of the folks uh, leave, you know, as, as that facility comes up and, and, and operates, there are, of course, still some people to maintain that. But it was uh, those type of uh, kind of social impact, uh, socio-ecological impact assessments, uh, a little different than looking at it in in the ocean, like for oil and gas development or wind, I think there's still some characteristics of, of those. Uh, but I think one has to take a step back and and look at it a a bit uh, differently. But I mean, I've done some you know literature searches, and uh, again, so many of, of those kind of studies and models. A lot of that literature comes out of a rural sociology, actually. Uh, is a pretty prevalent uh, body of, of knowledge in rural sociology that studied the impacts of, uh, of, of development activities for the, the dam or whatever on, on, on communities. And again, you could have a community of a thousand people turn into 10,000 pretty much overnight, right? And that's an yeah. effect, you know, I mean, where do people eat? Where do they, you know, they got to have water. They got to have, you know, other, uh, other necessities. And, and, and what we really uh, are looked at in, um, I think a lot of times with offshore, if you take like oil and gas 
in, in, the, in the Gulf of Mexico, at least in the early days, you kind of had a dispersed effect across several communities, across several states. If you're looking at like five states across, uh, across the Gulf of Mexico, uh, there might be uh, you know, certain areas that affected a bit more than others. You might find a Morgan City, Louisiana as a fabrication yard that really you know, gets really busy right, with, with fabrication and construction for offshore oil and gas platforms. Uh, you would find maybe centralized effects in some places like Port Fouchon uh, that would have deep water development uh, occur. You know, one of the only deep water ports that could handle the throughput uh, for offshore activity uh, with these uh, oil and gas developments that were happening, especially when, when, when uh, companies really figured out how to drill in deep water out there. Again, you kind of had that, that centralized effect. So, I, I, yeah, I think we're looking at it a you know, a bit, a bit differently, but at the same time, uh, I think there's lessons learned. I was a, you know, I was the project manager for the, for the Cape Wind project. Uh, I don't know if uh, you guys knew that, but yes, uh, I did the first one. Yeah, the very first proposed uh, mm -hmm. uh, project. Uh, so I, I spent four years uh, doing that. Wrote a 2,000-page environmental impact statement, <laughs> and did every kind of um, compliance. Uh, law that's required, whether that's, you know, Endangered Species Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act, National Historic Preservation Act, uh, Clean Air Act, you know, all, all these, uh, these you know, laws that, uh, that, that one must follow. And, uh, you know, that was kind of real, real project specific, right? Because it was, we were focused on that one project. It's before uh, that Bowman promulgated regulations with regard to that. So there was a lot of intensity with regard to, you know, this is in my backyard, and, and these are effects are, 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 are localized. So, so in that sense, I think one needed to understand that from, you know, from that scenario. Uh, right now, I mean, as we're looking at wind development, we're looking at, uh, I believe, 17 leases across the Atlantic, yeah. you know, from the Gulf of Maine South. So again, you're looking at kind of a dispersed, where are all the you know, there's going to need there's going to need to be port development. Where yeah. are they going to go? There's going to need to be other infrastructure developed. Where's all that going to happen? You know, there's going to be jobs created. You know, who's the, who's going to get the jobs? These are all these are all social economic type questions, but also an underpinning of natural resource development. And let's let's dive into the to the wind. I'm glad you brought up the wind discussion. Uh, that just for the listeners out there, a couple of highlights that have happened this year with BOM. Of course, the Biden Harris administration has aggressively pursued offshore wind power. They've announced a target of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power development, which is a massive amount of energy. Uh, a couple of the big lease sales, the one that I followed very closely, Rodney, was the New York Bite uh, wind sale off of sort of the New York, New Jersey area that brought in a whopping $4.37 billion in uh, lease bids for those wind power operation areas. Uh, in May, you guys completed the North Carolina offshore wind sale lease at $300 plus million on that lease sale. And uh, this week, we have the California wind lease public comment period opening for two major offshore wind sites in the California coast, Morrow Bay and Humboldt in northern California coast. Uh, there is a lot happening on wind. Obviously, this is a drive from the administration to respond to climate change. Um, what role does the Division of Environmental Services play 
in the development and evaluation of these lease opportunities. What, what's your job and what's your division's job in that process? Yeah, that, that's that's a great question. And um, I, I, I think uh, really uh, one way to, to, to frame it for your listeners is, uh, you know, we do the science to inform decisions. Um, so uh, underpinning these decisions that happen, um, uh, you know, we're not, naive enough to think it's they're only based on on uh, science there's also economics and and politics and other other things but it's you know the, the division of environmental sciences really focuses on what information is needed to inform these decisions i call uh, this um uh, that we have a uh, in the environmental uh, studies program uh, that, that's our program that was created in the outer continental shelf lands act uh, i call it the, a use inspired model um you know, you, you'd mentioned earlier about applied science. Um, mm-hmm. I like to call it use-inspired. It seems more elegant. Uh, it's this... Uh, <laughs> use-inspired. Like I get that. Use-inspired yeah. science. I and, like that. And and that really encompasses two things. We always up front, you know, have the consideration of use. How will we use the science to inform the decision? So up front, you know, I'm always asking, you know, if there's a, a, an idea for a marine archaeology study, okay, how are we going to use this science to inform this decision off, you know, California, off, 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 off Massachusetts. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing with, a, with an anthropology effort. Same thing if we're studying whales. So we have that consideration of use, but at the same time, uh, we're also in this quest for fundamental understanding. We realize that there's changing environment, that there is climate change. So how can we discern the effects from the activities we oversee uh, from the larger global hmm. phenomena uh, of, of climate. There's this great quote uh, by um, Louis Pasteur in 1863. He says, uh, there's not pure science and applied science, but only science and the application of science. Hmm. I love that because yeah. that, that really is our, our use-inspired model. Um, you know, we're, we're not the uh, National Science Foundation. Love those guys. Have yeah. partnerships with them. But we're not them. Uh, we, we don't want to be them. Uh, they're basic science. We are use inspired in the sense that we really have to ask those tough questions to, to ensure that we have the right information to make good decisions to mitigate any kind of, uh, you know, impacts and harm to the environment while hopefully accentuating the benefits. And one thing about this that I think is so important is to kind of look at it kind of from a multi-use perspective as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the last thing, you know, we want to do is for, you know, wind development to take off and flourish and, and fisheries to suffer. You know, we don't want that. We want, we want wind, wind to win, uh, but we also want fisheries to win. Yep. We want the ecology to win. We want a win, win, win situation across the board. And really the only way to really, uh, to do that and to uh, do an, a natural resource development in a sustainable way uh, is is science, and we have to have that uh, that science to to really focus uh, focus us in on on what are are the effects. Again, what are those mitigations that we need right. moving forward? And and, and it's, it's difficult. Um, yeah, um, you know, <clears throat> Ronnie- and. 
Let me let me ask you because the you mentioned the fisheries implications, and this Tyler is kind of the classic trade offs that we explore on Coastal News Today and ASPN all the time. A fault line. This is a fault line, and and these geographic spaces that are being utilized offshore uh, serve a lot of interests and shipping and fisheries and uh, aquaculture and energy and the rest, recreation, uh, tourism. Uh, and it's always about this balance of multi, multi-users, uh, very much a department of the interior concept, the multi, multi, multiple use and sustainable yield and, and forest management and federal land management, the very common principle. Uh, Rodney, do you get a chance to stand in front of a crowd of fishermen on an offshore lease sale and hear firsthand their concerns? Are you at that level of the discussion Uh What's your role in the development of these offshore lease areas for wind power? Yeah, and taking the science yeah. to the people. Yeah, yeah. As and how say. do they respond to your your multiple use sustained yield sort of thinking? Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, at one point when I was project manager of the Cape Wind project, I did stand in front and listen, you know, firsthand. A lot of times now we'll have a task force meetings with different states or those stakeholders. And uh, we'll have our like fisheries biologists, if they're talking to the fisheries group mm-hmm. there, we'll have, uh, you know, our tribal liaisons there, you know, if they're, you know, consulting with the tribe. So not as often now am I yeah. kind of on, uh, you know, no, you're in, the in boss, all, all, all those discussions. <laughs> I mean, I mean I'm, I'm in charge of a national science program. Again, right. we do all the, the, the Atlantic, the Gulf, Pacific, you know, Hawaii, Alaska. So I'm looking at kind of it from, yeah. a, from a high level. Now, but what we do you know, as we decide what science that we need to do, you know, each year I give a, 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 a call out to all of our internal scientists, all our 200 some odd scientists across BOEM, and ask for their, their science needs, their science ideas. After I receive those, I then have a stakeholder list of all the stakeholders from tribal people to fisheries people, community people, other federal agencies, academics. I send out a note saying, what science do we need to inform our decisions? So I get that kind of mm-hmm. that public stakeholder perspective, if you will. A scoping because, process. Right. And then <laughs> and after we do that, we mm-hmm. kind of cobble together that information and we do kind of an internal uh, review. Say all of our people that study marine mammals will work together on those marine mammal studies, not to kind of critique each other so much, but it's kind of to I've tried to create like a culture of collegiality. Let's make this effort this idea the best it could possibly be awesome. and we work together to try to do that in a collegial manner and then we take uh, those ideas and put them in front of the national academy of sciences engineering and medicine we have a, a committee on offshore science and assessment and annually they uh, they review these ideas we do it uh, usually around the july time frame it's coming up pretty quick and they'll provide uh, advice and we take that advice back and kind of mm-hmm. narrow it down. As you might imagine, with a couple of 200 scientists, I might have 200 ideas, right? right. But we may only have the budget to fund uh, 25. So we have to narrow that down, focus that in, and then uh, I seek approval, of course, from our director uh, to actually move forward and, and to put money on, on, okay. on those. So, That's yeah, the good process. We, it's a, it. an engaged community, engaged Grassroots-oriented, bottom-up yep. science investigation process sounds absolutely st- solid. Yep. I would like to talk to and Tyler. We should. I want to let's let's talk about what your judgment is, uh, Rodney, based on what you've learned so far on wind power. Uh, 
do you think it can be sustainably done? What's your read now? We've got you've gone through some lease sales. We're starting to see the uh, offshore industry, energy industry, uh, for wind developing along the American shoreline. Are you optimistic that the environmental and sociological implications of this new, huge, potentially huge industry on the American shoreline can be executed uh, fairly and equitably and sustainably? What are you seeing in the conversation? What is, what's your perspective looking forward? Yeah, I absolutely think it can be done in a, in a sustainable manner. Um, you know, we started looking at, at this, uh, well, the Energy Policy Act passed in 2005, right? So, uh, so that's been, you know, quite some, some time. And, um, you know, one way that, uh, that we do business in our, in our environmental science program, we're very, we're very nimble. We have a, you know, a, a very, you know, small teams compared to other agencies like we talked about earlier. So we're able to reach out to some of the best, whether that's reach out to academic institutions like Woods Hole, uh, Duke, Scripps, uh, you know, the, 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 these, these great uh, institutions kind of on a dime were able to make that. I mean, we were, after the Energy Policy Act passed, we were doing studies within, within a year or two to actually answer some of these questions. So again, it's not just foam setting back uh, thinking about this, and it's not just kind of Rodney's perspective. What we've learned from the best minds, from the science that we can do, from our scientists, and the engagement that we've had across other federal agencies, across academic institutions, you know, uh, you, you know, and and discussions with stakeholders, as is yes, th this can be done in a sustainable manner. We again need to ensure that we're understanding as much as we can about the baseline as much as we can um, about the effects um, during construction, because that's when you're gonna have to have a lot of mitigations. And, uh, and then of course you need to understand it through that lifetime of, of operations, which could be out there for 30 or, or more years. And then you need to understand, okay, well then when it's decommissioned, what are gonna be the effects? So it's really about, it's a lot about, uh, I don't want to sound too much like a nerd, but I guess since I am, I guess I can. I guess I'm allowed. <laughs> We're okay with uh, nerds. We, we like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's about the data, you know, man. You got to have the data, the information, so you can, you can have that baseline. You can monitor through that construction, through those operations, to that decommissioning. And, you know, really, the monitoring piece, I think, is so important and that's part of our, our mandate under Section 20 of the OCS Lands Act for, for our environmental science program is, it is to do that, that monitoring. And um, I definitely think, you know, we can do it safe and sustainable, but we got to ask the right questions. And I, being able to do that, uh, you know, we really have to ensure that we're using the latest uh, emerging technologies, uh, the latest techniques, we really want to be innovative. I mean, some of the work we're doing right now, uh, you know, we're combining uh, like passive acoustic monitoring, in other words, having devices out in the ocean listening to whales. But we're also doing, in those listening devices, we're also collecting eDNA. So maybe we hear the calls of a whale and through artificial intelligence, we can actually tell what species it is when we have multiple, multiple, you know, thousands and thousands of, of, of calls. We can tell species, but also through the water sample, we can uh, analyze the, uh, the poop or the cells or whatever in, in the water yep. and also say, hey, was that a right whale? Oh, okay, well, or, or not. Or was it, you know, a say whale or a humpback or, or whatever? 
so we're able to, you know, protect like the 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 right will with the understanding that maybe there is uh, you know migration through a certain area during construction, and we can quiet things down while they migrate through and then ramp back up. You know, we don't want to you know have a mother aboard a calf or anything like that. So it is that science that we can put in place you know, proper mitigation. But I can't emphasize enough on the importance uh, to really do the, 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 the type of monitoring that, that's needed. And with the technology we have now, uh, being able to do a sophisticated type of, of acoustics analysis, to do sophisticated types of you know, environmental DNA, and the artificial intelligence stuff with machine learning is just mind blowing. I mean, you know, from space, you know, we can get, you know, thousands and thousands, millions of images and, you know, of birds in, in, a, in a certain area, say off Massachusetts and, and distinguish, you know, if it's a roseate tern or a common tern. Roseate terns are endangered, common terns are not. Not that we don't love the common tern too, but they're not an endangered species. Right. So, you know, this type of uh, information is, is, is really important and you know we have to work together so really one of our pillars of success is partnering and leveraging you know we don't have any satellites we don't have airplanes we don't have ships but we got best friends at nasa that do have satellites we got best friends at noaa that have the ships we got best friends at fish and wildlife with aircraft that we need to to, 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 to use, you know, for, for certain types of uh, studies. So I tell people this often, you know, for us, um, you know, partnering, uh, you know, is, is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And in, in addition to that, it's good government because we should be working. We together. should all, yeah, everyone should really like to hear that. Yeah, I, well, I have we, to say, we, it's very important. Yeah, well, we have to, to answer these long-term questions to come together, not only with the federal government, but also bring, you know, academics, private sector, uh, you know, other entities, uh, you know, developers, uh, you know, to all, you know, get it right, man. Because, I mean, we're on the cusp of something fantastic and great here with, with yep. wind energy that's going to really be a sea change. And we've really got an opportunity to make sure we're doing it right. And my role in that and my team's role in that is to ensure the science is there to inform those decisions. We're not going to be the decision maker. Uh, that's going to be our director and the secretary of the interior up to the White House. But our job is to make sure they have the information they need to make an informed decision. Well, and, and I, I have to say, and this is just my opinion now, Rodney. Uh, so speaking, speaking just for old Tyler Buckingham here. The die has been cast, ladies and gentlemen. We are going forward with large-scale offshore wind. I think it's safe to say the investment yeah. has been there. This Again, this is strictly Peter and Tyler. This is just Tyler's talking here. But so the, in my opinion, you know, the, the, it, we will be putting these things out there. There will be impacts. Rodney, as you pointed out, and I think it's just so true, these impacts are going to be not only environmental but also social, and we need mm -hmm. to study all of that. But with a real, I think, opportunity, uh, if I may say so, going forward, uh, is the monitoring. The, the fact is that we are now moving into the ocean in a new way, in a, in a brand new way. And our technology not only allows us to uh, generate energy with wind turbines, but it also allows us to place new types of sensors out there. Peter, you ran a story just the other day about uh, coral uh, mm -hmm. being using this infrastructure. You know, these are going to be big steel 
uh, structures out in the ocean, you can mount corals onto them, at least yep. in theory. Orsted has taken a look at uh, yeah, integrating coral restoration into the offshore wind industry. So this is a new so. kind of relationship in my mind with uh, an ocean industry where we are going to be building physical infrastructure. We will be monitoring it going forward scientifically. And I think we're going to learn a lot about the impacts of, of our activities for sure. And I think we're just going to learn a lot about the ocean generally. I mean, there, we will have sensors deployed out there all the time and more of them. And uh, there, there is, we have a reason to, inv- like the, there are requirements to study these in the, and monitor. And those, uh, those investments will bear fruit over time in ways that I think will be really, really enlightening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, out of our, our, our EEZ, again, that goes out to about 200 miles, uh, kind of similar to the outer continental shelf, uh, we've only mapped 53% of it. So we've only mapped a little over half of uh, of the United States uh, EEZ, which is interesting. Uh, so, um, you know, I think it's really, uh, you know, that I think that speaks a lot, and it kind of speaks to your point that, um, you know, this is an opportunity to learn and and to learn learn more. And again, with the science and and the data and the information we gather, uh, we're going to be able to manage better. And if, indeed, yeah, if you have uh, structures out in the ocean, you know, you're going to be able to, to be able to put more sensors out there. Uh, you're going to be able to uh, you know, look at things in, in a different uh, perspective, mm-hmm. right, over time. And again, that's going to be just kind of a, a really, really good way to look at this uh this change. I mean, cause that's what we're looking at, you know, it's a we're, big trying change. To, we're, we're really trying to chase that Delta, man. You know, we're trying to trying mm-hmm. to find that change. What is that change? What's that increment uh, from the activities out there that we're regulating versus uh, overall multiple use versus overall changes in the climate. And then trying to kind of manage that in, in a way, uh, in, in a real clear, safe, sustainable way, you know, I think is, is important, but you know, this, this again is a is an opportunity to actually really kind of you know uh, make a, a huge huge mark and a huge move forward here. I hope so. And yeah, the trick is uh, Rodney. I think is is the science listened to? Does it fit into the policy? Are the policymakers and decision makers attentive to the information that you're generating? Uh, what has your experience been in terms of? Uh, the receptiveness of the decision makers, the leaser, the folks doing the leases and, and uh, uh, permitting these projects for offshore energy, uh, whether oil and gas or wind, uh, are they receptive to the information you provide? What's your experience been over the many uh, uh, administrations you've worked under? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, uh, you know, in my 20 plus years uh, that I've been here, I, I really would have to say uh, that there's uh, the policymakers have always been receptive to listen. Um, Good. You know, I don't think I would still be here if I would have had an experience where right. where they didn't. But you know, over the different administrations, you know, uh, you know, maybe part of it, you know, there is an advantage to working at a small agency. I can pick up the phone and call the director whenever I feel like yeah. it, right? You know, yeah. and, you know, the director, whether that's, you know, whatever administration it may be, is going to want to know what's going on. 
So, and uh, yeah, I think people understand the, the, the importance of, of an environmental science program, especially, you know, we have to comply with all the laws, right? I mean, there's an Endangered Species Act for a reason, and there's a Migratory, Migratory Bird Treaty Act for a reason, you know, there's National Historic Preservation Act for a region, reason, so these kind of laws must be complied with. So I've always found that I can get that audience, can be able to uh, present the information, whether uh, it's uh, you know challenging, um, somewhat controversial, whatever, you know, to to the decision makers, and um, you know, I, I think that's really uh, that openness is really really important, and I think that's a, a really valuable benefit to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and and what we do to uh, that any one of our you know scientists that are out there. I find something uh, different, unusual, and they bring it to me, and I think, gosh, we need to elevate this. We do. Yeah. And I, I think that's the, that's the way it should be. 100%. Such an important job, a critical role in the federal government, and, uh, you know, we're a huge fan of, of, of uh, BOEM and the science and the quality of the work on your team. Uh, Rodney, thank you for taking us on a little bit of a tour inside the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and the Division of Environmental Services. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Rodney Cluck. He is the chief of the Division of Environmental Services at BOEM and uh, one of the instrumental players in the development of one of the biggest emerging industries on the American shoreline, offshore wind and uh, the continued development of oil and gas and uh, other resources from the Outer Continental Shelf. Rodney, thank you for spending time with our listeners on the American Trailline Podcast. We really appreciate your time. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.